the FT. This is World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week, Greece continues to haunt Europe, the fall of the head of Switzerland's National Bank, and political reform in Myanmar. We start with the long-running euro crisis, and on the line from Berlin, we've got Quentin Peel, who's our Berlin bureau chief, and in the studio, Ben Hall, our Europe news editor. So, Ben, all sorts of European negotiations going on, particularly in Greece. Where does that stand, and uh, how delicate is it? Well, I think it's very delicate. Once again, uh, the Greek question is preoccupying European policymakers uh, deeply. Greece needs a second rescue. Uh, the, the the number was 130 billion euros. That was the number that was come up with in came up with in, in October. That's uh, was already in itself an increase on 109 billion euros. The previous rescue, and the gap is probably growing as the Greek economy uh, continues to contract. Um, what they're trying to do is get a reduction in Greece's debt pile by persuading bondholders, private sector bondholders, to take a hit. The thing is that hit is getting bigger by the week. Uh, now they're looking at a sort of 60% uh, net, a reduction in the net present value of their bonds. But the, the, the talks are very complicated and there are signs that there are some big uh, holdouts, uh, particularly from hedge funds who, don't, who are hoping that they can get paid back in full one day. So the whole thing is very complicated. The IMF uh, won't pay out uh, its share of the rescue fund unless it thinks that um, the Greek situation is sustainable. And the Europeans are loath to put more money in Greece, uh, into Greece, uh, to help uh, prevent it from from defaulting. And now we have another clock ticking on Greece, which is that they have a massive bond redemption, about 14 billion euros in March. And if they don't um, get the money together to be able to pay that back, then Greece will be forced into a disorderly default, which would be disastrous for the Eurozone. What are the odds on that happening, do you think? I think um, it's a possibility, but I think... uh, um, history suggests that the Eurozone will inevitably cobble, cobble together some kind of solution. The question is, to what extent uh, does the cobbling together over the next few months really destabilise the Eurozone uh, and, and the bond markets, bond market confidence in the Eurozone? That's that's what we've seen over the re- over recent years, and I, I think it's probably what we will get more of. Now, Quentin, in Berlin, another Greek crisis is, I'm sure, the very last thing the Merkel government wants, particularly when they're trying to negotiate very tricky uh, European treaties and really focus on what seems even even bigger question, which is Italy. So, so what's the government's approach to this whole network of problems at the moment? Well, I, th- I think they're certainly very concerned. They had hoped that this whole Greek thing could be sorted out before the end of last year. After all, this is the deal that they'd agreed in principle in uh, back in October, uh, and the talks have been dragging on and dragging on. So very concerned, and Angela Merkel has made it clear that if there isn't a deal with the private sector on taking a haircut on their bonds, then the whole package doesn't come into play. And then I think the reality of a Greek default is, 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 comes much closer. So that's the concern. Having said that, I, I think there is a feeling that on other fronts, things are moving rather better. I mean, Angela Merkel met Mario Monti, the Italian prime minister in Berlin here on Wednesday, and uh, she was uh, really positive about the programme that he's introduced in Italy, not only the substance of that programme, that he really does seem to be tackling some long-standing uh, Italian problems, both on, on spending but also on structural reforms, 
labour market liberalisation. But in fact, she was terribly, very pleased at the speed with which he's got on with it. So that was one positive thing. And the other positive thing is they feel that the negotiations for the treaty changes they want in the, in the EU for the Eurozone to make budget discipline much tougher are going really quite well. And they're hoping for at least a political agreement by the end of the month. I mean, it's, it's interesting that uh, Mario Monti has a lot more to show uh, for his nearly well, two and a half months in power than Lucas Papademos, the uh, former central bank governor in Greece, who really hasn't made much headway at all. And that's partly, of course, because he doesn't have his own government, uh, whereas Mario Monti does and uh, and doesn't have. Uh, well, Greek uh, Mr. Papademos has elections looming, which means that nobody wants to do anything in Greece. And a hell of a lot more to show also than Mr. Berlusconi had for all his years in office. Mm. But I guess, Quentin, that one of the things that will concern them is that all, for all the energy and uh, sincerity with which Mr. Monty is bringing to the task, there must be a, a worry that they'll get trapped in a Greek-style situation where these uh, austerity that he's having to impose reduces the growth in the economy or sends them into recession, and therefore the budget deficit widens. Uh, how are they trying to balance this need for austerity with the urge to have something that contributes to growth? Yes, Mario Monti has said right from the start, he said the key to Italian economy is growth. We all know what needs to be done on austerity. It's not that dramatic. Yes, we've got to get our public debt down. Our deficit is not that bad. Um, and in fact, uh, it's getting that public debt down can only be done with growth. So that's very much the message with which he's come to the Germans to say, stop banging on about austerity all the time and actually start talking about growth. And that's precisely what Merkel has started doing. She, she began uh, when she saw Sarkozy at the beginning of the week and she said, now we must bring in the second pillar, that's growth, it's jobs, above all it's youth unemployment. Now when you scratch at that and say, okay, what's in this sort of growth initiative? Well, they're still working on it. They admit that most of the things they're talking about are not immediate short term. They're not talking about some massive Keynesian stimulation in, in a matter of weeks. They're talking about structural reforms, labor market reforms, more labor mobility, a very interesting one, I think, but something that takes time to promote. So all of these things are, in a way, long-term solutions to the short-term problem. Ben, uh, final question. Uh, the one country we haven't discussed yet is the one that's having a presidential election uh, in April and May, France, a country you were based in for many years. How does the French political and economic uh, demands, how do they affect this whole overall European picture, do you think? Well, as, as Quentin just mentioned, <clears throat> clearly Sarkozy wants there for an emphasis to be placed on growth and jobs uh, in the run-up to the presidential election campaign and not on more austerity. And actually, to be fair to him, he is beginning to contemplate some quite bold measures, such as uh, cutting social charges in, in return for a hike in VAT, which could prove incredibly unpopular in France, but he's willing to take that kind of gamble. So um, I think the, the presidential election campaign is a very important backdrop to this Eurozone crisis, um, but I don't think it will stop a Eurozone solution as such. Is, is it what's pushing him, though, to go for this financial transactions tax? Is that really about French domestic politics, do you think? I think it's very largely about French domestic politics. Although, to be fair, I think the French and German leaders do see an intellectual case for, um, you know, taxing more heavily financial services, throwing a bit of grit into the wheels. Um, but uh, I think um, it's clearly uh, a positioning by Sarkozy to be 
seen as taking on the bankers and financial services in an election year, which can't be anything but popular in France. OK, uh, Ben Hall in, in London and Quentin Peel in Berlin, thank you both very much indeed. To Switzerland now, where Philip Hildebrand, the head of the central bank, has been forced to resign over the foreign exchange dealings of his wife. On the line from Zurich now is Haig Simonian, our correspondent there. Haig, Philip Hildebrand strikes me as, as an unusual sort of central banker, or he was an unusual sort of central banker. Is that fair? It is indeed, and indeed it's ironic that his very virtues may have been part of his downfall. Um, His background is in the private sector, and most notably the six years he spent at Moore Capital, a very prominent U.S. hedge fund, where he rose to become a partner. Was he also personally a little bit more flamboyant or outgoing than the kind of archetypal gnomes of Zurich? I think that's absolutely true, and indeed that was, again, one of the reasons he was selected. Um, The Swiss National Bank is a highly respected institution. Uh, It's a small, albeit wealthy, country with a national bank that has for decades punched above its weight. Some of the SMB's past chairman, Felix Leutwiller, is one of the most famous examples, were very well known indeed on the international financial scene, but they really were the archetypal institutional bureaucrats people who preferred to avoid the headlines, who were technically extremely competent, but were not necessarily outgoing, and even if they were, preferred not to demonstrate it. Philip Hildebrand was very much the opposite, technically very able, but more importantly, multilingual, very confident, and very suave. This thing that brought him down, the foreign exchange trading by his wife, what do you think was going on in his head? Do you think he genuinely thought it was okay, or do you think he thought he'd get away with it? I think it's incredibly complicated to try and um, to try and uh, get to that. Um, I think that he thought it was okay in the sense that the Swiss National Bank has rules regarding what its three-member governing board can do, and indeed, in Hildebrandt's favour, uh, those rules were actually only created in 2004 just one year after he joined, and apparently at his very behest, before there were no rules at all. Now, in retrospect, the rules which were only published last week are very loose, and many people have criticized them for uh, the fact that they seem to uh, allow an astonishing freedom of action, not just trading by uh, other halves, but also uh, trading on one's own account in a variety of instruments, including equities, fixed income, precious metals, everything, in fact, apart from shares in Swiss banks, on the proviso, though, that the instruments concerned are held for a minimum six months, the idea presumably being that if you trade and hold for less than six months, it implies speculation. Uh, He also appears to have been slightly less than straightforward about exactly how much he knew about what was going on. That's certainly what's just coming out now in the aftermath of his resignation. Again, it's a little bit hard to point the finger, um, but there is one crucial email, albeit not from him, but from his uh, client advisor at the bank where the Hildebrands hold their accounts, which uh, implies he knew more than he said he did. Uh, On the other hand, I suppose we ought to put it in context. I mean, he, in the last three or four weeks, has been under astonishing uh, political pressure here in Switzerland. But more more broadly, let's not forget, we're in the middle still of a Eurozone financial crisis. The Swiss National Bank is conducting a separate battle of its own to try and prevent the Swiss franc from appreciating and further clobbering the export sector. Uh, This isn't somebody who's exactly had time on his hands recently. 
And, yeah, I mean, what are the policy implications of him going? Because he was, as you say, associated with some really important decisions. I think that policy associations are manifold. This is a country which is going through a very difficult transition period, particularly in terms of the financial sector. There are two branches there. One, uh, the influence of the country's biggest banks, Credit Suisse and UBS, amid the world regulatory changes. And secondly, in Switzerland specific, the whole issue of private banking and bank secrecy. That, as you know, has been a Swiss forte, but in the more transparent world, Switzerland is finding itself having to adjust. Hildebrand was a person who could really cut a dash um, on the international financial stage, whether at the BIS in Basel, whether at the Financial Stability Board, whether at the IMF or World Bank. He, he really was a poster boy for Switzerland and uh, played a very useful role in trying to maintain, if not increase, the influence of the country at a time uh, when many Swiss, especially politicians, are frankly little short of neurotic about losing influence in the world. Philip Hildebrand was associated with a successful, controversial intervention in the foreign exchange markets where he said, OK, the Swiss franc's risen against the euro and the dollar, but no further. We're, we're capping it. And it seemed to work. Uh, is that policy now in question? I think inevitably the policy was associated with the personality, but the SMB and the government have done everything possible to stress that the SMB is a collegial body. There is the three-member, now two-member governing board. They'll try and appoint a third one as soon as possible, and they really have tried to emphasize this, this concept of consensus and collegiality, which is an underlying Swiss principle. Interestingly, the markets don't seem to have tested uh, the uh, currency peg, um, and so far at least, uh, Switzerland seems to have come off quite well. To be fair, although Hildebrand was the face of the Swiss National Bank, um, I, I think one reason why the currency intervention and the peg, which has been going since the 6th of September last year, has been surprisingly successful is because even speculators have been convinced that Switzerland has the resources effectively to print as much money as required to maintain that level. OK, Haig, thank you very much indeed. To Myanmar now, where the process of political reform is attracting increasing international attention and hopes for a transition to democracy. Earlier, Fiona Simon spoke to Gwen Robinson, who's our Southeast Asia correspondent and who's just returned from Myanmar. She asked her how serious the government there seems to be about the reform process. Change is the order of the day there. Every day you're hearing uh, new plans by the government, new initiatives, bureaucrats and... Uh, Aid workers are working full-time on various plans. Then, of course, there's the excitement about elections in the air, and now you are seeing people openly supporting Aung San Suu Kyi, the pro-democracy leader, who has just confirmed that she will stand in the April 1 by-elections. So it's a really intense combination of economic, political, social change. What can you tell us about the state of the economy in the country? Well, it's still desperately poor and uh, it's very uneven as well. On the weekend, I went out to the constituency about 30 miles south of Yangon, the former capital, called Kormu, which is where Aung San Suu Kyi is going to stand as a candidate in the by-elections. It is so desperately poor. It's really beyond belief. It was flattened by the cyclone Nagas in 2008 and... It's really very basic subsistence living. In Yangon, you've got a real surge of activity and there's a lot of entrepreneurship, people selling things on the street and uh, seizing 
community of restaurants, little shops and things like that. But at the same time, it's clearly a country that is in desperate need of help. And yet it's a country with extensive resources that remain relatively untapped. How close are they, do you think, to being able to develop it further? Already, even though Western companies have been held back by sanctions imposed by Europe, America, Australia, um, you've had vast investments and very big projects by the Chinese and, to a lesser extent, Indians, South Koreans and, of course, the Thais. So there's a lot of investment already in there and, as well, you know, there's there's quite a bit of trade in timber, gemstones, uh, various minerals. So you have already got a very sort of large base of investment in extractive industries and areas like that. And I believe you spoke to members of the central bank in Myanmar. How close uh, do you think they are to establishing a fixed exchange rate, which has obviously been a topic for quite some time? What would this mean for the country if they did so? Uh, That's right. I spoke to uh, a director and deputy director of the central bank who would be about third in charge, and they made it very clear that unification of the exchange rate is a huge priority for them this year, and they want it done this year. At the moment, the local currency, the chat, is exchanging for around 800 chat per dollar, and that in itself is a big change that you can get that rate uh, these days from even from a bank, whereas, for example, a year ago, banks were forced to observe an official rate, which was some ridiculously small amount, like six chat to the dollar or less. So that's happened very quickly. And the next step will be to move to either a fixed or floating rate and normalize the whole exchange rate system, as well as embark on various other financial reforms. So I think you could expect to see some action on that, possibly within the next few months, definitely within the year. In terms of financial reforms, their big ambition is to develop their capital markets. But I I think that's quite a long way off yet. There's no real framework for legislation. That said, there are some very sensible proposals floating around. And right now, you've got the IMF, World Bank, ADB and various other um, agencies in there trying to get a sense of what the immediate priorities should be on that front. We've also seen some very high profile visits recently from Secretary Clinton and UK Foreign Minister William Hague. Are we starting to see a significant shift from the Western end of things in response to the reforms in the country? And how close do you think we are even to sanctions being lifted? Uh, Most definitely. There's a, a lot of expectation building on that triggered uh, initially by Hillary Clinton's visit, the first such visit by a uh, U.S. Secretary of State in, I think, five decades or more, similarly with William Hague's visit. It's very clear that there is a growing desire on the part of the West to lift those sanctions, but as William Hague said, and I think this goes for all the Western countries, those sanctions will only be lifted once they see action on several key points. The the real sticking points now are the release of all remaining political prisoners. Estimates vary from 600 to 1,200 political prisoners still held in jails and labour camps through the country. And also uh, there's a few other things. The resolution of conflict in the large ethnic areas to the north and northeast and other patches around the country. I think the other thing the Western um, countries would like to see is more humanitarian access to those areas. And the key priority as well would be a free and fair election. 
which I think all the analyst observers, such as diplomats in Yangon, believe will be fair and clean enough for Western countries to say that perhaps it is time to ease those uh, restrictions. That was Gwen Robinson, just back from Myanmar. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Ben Hall here in the studio in London, to Quentin Peel in Berlin and Haig Simonian in Zurich. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.